and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and today you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. If you ask most Americans about the United States' involvement in foreign wars, they may tell you that war is a thing of the past and no longer an issue. Indeed, in a speech at the United Nations only two years ago, President Biden declared that our country had turned the page and was not at war. Yet, in the last 20 years, our so-called war on terror has spawned an endless and secretive program of foreign interventions, from Iraq through Afghanistan and Syria, and on to little-known deployments in a range of countries around the globe, causing the deaths of thousands of U.S. soldiers and private contractors and the displacement of over 40 million people. While the media may cover the anguish and adversity suffered by American service personnel, it is all but silent on the number of people slaughtered by inaccurate drone strikes and those left to die of starvation after the United States pulls out its troops. We're talking via telephone today to Norman Solomon, the author of more than a dozen books on media, politics, and foreign policy. He's the founder of the Institute for Public Accuracy and the national director of the online organization RootsAction.org. For 17 years, he wrote the weekly syndicated column Media Beat, which appeared in major newspapers across the country. His byline has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, The Nation, and many other newspapers and magazines. Today we're talking about his new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Norman Solomon, I want to thank you very much for talking with us today. So the book makes the case that since 9-11... And about equal numbers of years of both Republican and Democratic administrations, the United States has been in an almost perpetual state of war that the majority of the American public is basically clueless about. What are the wars and why are we clueless? The wars have been so perpetual at this point that we don't even ask, well, when do you think this war might end? Which we would have wondered uh, during a lot of previous wars, including Vietnam. How long is this war going to go on? It has become so emblematic and routine, so pervasive and assumed that um, really nobody is asking that question anymore. The so-called war on terror has gone on for more than two decades with no end in sight. And it's been very bipartisan. As you mentioned, Democratic and Republican presidents have pursued it. They've embraced the same uh, basic assumptions and rhetoric. And so it's become not only bipartisan, but almost um, in the wallpaper of the media echo chamber. And that makes it all the more important to rethink, to challenge, and to count the cost. And one of the reasons that I titled the book War Made Invisible is I believe that the costs have largely been hidden from the American public because of the way media and politics function. We're just so used to it. And... uh 
there are people born in the century uh, in adulthood who have never really known anything but war. But that's very dangerous. And the one thing I would, I'd add on that uh, right now is that democracy is supposed to be the informed consent of the governed. Unfortunately, right now, we have the deceived or the uninformed consent of the governed. That's not really democracy. Can you tell us where these wars are actually going on? Well, today we have some public reports about the U.S. has engaged in drone strikes and military actions even on the ground in Syria. Uh, this uh, almost two years after President Biden announced at the U.N. that purportedly the U.S. was no longer at war. The United States has been engaged in airstrikes uh, in Somalia and elsewhere in Africa. We also have, and this is part of the problem with gauging the extent of U.S. military activities, we have enormous numbers of special ops going on, and the budget of special operations has increased uh, dramatically in the last two decades. Uh, the cost of war project at Brown University says that, in a sense, uh, involving so many more countries, the United States is more involved in a so-called war on terror than ever. So it's, the more it becomes uh, ubiquitous on the planet, reaching out to so many corners of the globe, the less noteworthy it is. As I mentioned in the book, the war on terror, as it's been called, has become, you might say, a sort of a, a dog bites human story from media standpoint. It, it's routinely considered to be not of note anymore. You tell us that the essence of propaganda is repetition. And as you mentioned, that phrases like defense spending and war on terror are not only misleading, but used by the media so many times that we fail to analyze them and accept them. We actually accept them as just facts of existence. But omission is another tactic used by the media, you tell us, that is equally, if not even more pernicious. So give us an example of the silences used to make the public numb to war. Well, right now, I think the silences uh, overwhelmingly still have to do with the victims of U.S. firepower, whether we see the retrospectives when they are reported on uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth, uh, very rarely is there a substantive men mention or depiction of the ongoing results of the U.S. warfare in those countries. Some mention U.S. veterans, very little about the on-the-ground uh, social and personal uh, costs, the maiming, the PTSD, the trauma that has continued in those countries. Another, from a historical vantage point, but in the present day, would have to do when, say, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, or President Biden, or a Republican leader on the Hill, talked about how Russia has committed this terrible offense, international crime, uh, violating international law, invading uh, another country, um, in this case, Ukraine. Well, of course, that's true. We should condemn Russia for its invasion and terrible war on people in Ukraine. But the same people, uh, such as Blinken and Biden and Republican leaders in Congress, who are condemning Russia for an invasion and violating international law, supported the United States invading Iraq and violating international law. So there's sort of an Orwellian dynamic, what Orwell in 1984 did, that putting a fact on the shelf and then taking it off when it's convenient 
and then putting it back on the shelf when it becomes inconvenient. So we're we're stuck in this sort of Orwellian zone. And what we really need is a single standard of human rights and a single standard of international behavior. Can you talk about the bias inherent in covering a war between white European people in Ukraine and virtually ignoring the tens of millions of displaced people in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, the Philippines. That's pretty blatant racism by the media, isn't it? One of the things that really struck me uh, working on this book is how ingrained the inherent racism is in U.S. foreign policy and media coverage, and even more startling because it's almost never talked about in U.S. mass media. I was months into this book before I asked a simple question while I was doing the research, and that is, how many people killed by the so-called war on terror conducted by the United States were people of color? What proportion? And the answer, as near as I can tell, is essentially 100%. That ever since 9-11 and the attack on Afghanistan in October of 2001, virtually every person killed by the targeting of the U.S. military or military action on the ground, whether from the air or on the ground, they've been people of color. Well, especially since the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers, We quite properly have been engaged in a national discourse about systemic racism. And yet the implicit assumption is that such racism stops at the water's edge in terms of foreign policy and doesn't affect that policy. And as I say in the book, it's not that the U.S. is bombing other countries because they're inhabited by people of color, but the fact that they're inhabited by people of color makes it easier for the U.S. to bomb and keep bombing those countries. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the many foreign wars our country is currently involved in and that they are largely downplayed and ignored by the media. My guest is Norman Solomon. His new book is War Made Visible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Norman, the book talks about the media basically walking in lockstep with the U.S. government's policies when it comes to making war. And it's kind of become routine to think of MSNBC and CNN as the liberal media, Fox as the conservative media, and the networks as somewhere in between. But just to be clear, you mean all the media, and that if individual journalists don't toe the line, their careers are in jeopardy. Have I got that right? Well, you do. There are rare exceptions, but as I say in the book, the essence of propaganda is repetition, not the rare exceptions. And this is not only bipartisan on Capitol Hill, but whether you watch Fox or MSNBC or CNN, the acceptance of the prerogative of the U.S. to go and bomb other countries, people might argue about when and where and how, but the right of the U.S. to do that is pretty much accepted. So as you refer to, there is a overall lockstep relationship between media and uh, the warmaker apparatus in Washington, that's very unhealthy. So if we're going to have the informed consent of the government covered, it shouldn't be to be a uh, sort of a amplifying force or stenography service 
for the government. We need independent journalism, independent media, and especially when it comes to foreign policy and war making, we're not getting it. And I should add that if we look at this kind of behavior, it's not just a matter of the reporting we get, but it's the parallel appropriations, the parallel policy, and how it's accepted. So the Pentagon budget is at record highs, and yet it's accepted and reported by news media as, oh, that's just common sense. <laughs> you give a wonderful story that I had no idea about, and it's about Phil Donahue, and it's about 22 years old now, but he was, at one point, one of the most popular TV folks out there. And tell us what happened to him when he tried to give an alternate view of the uh, beginning of the war in Iraq. Yes, in the 20th century, Phil Donahue was just uh, so popular, widely seen around the country with his daily TV show. Then at the beginning of uh, the 21st century, he went on the new network, MSNBC, a very popular show, top-rated uh, for primetime. But he committed, according to the top brass at MSNBC, owned by NBC, a real uh, faux pas. He actually allowed, among his guests, to be some anti-war speakers, analysts, experts, who were disagreeing with the scenario for the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And several weeks before that invasion, he was just suddenly fired his show with canceled, even though the ratings were very good. And we might just guess at why, but we don't have to guess, because a memo from the top of MSNBC management was leaked out. It was an authentic memo, and it said that the top managers of MSNBC were worried that with the U.S. going to war, the rivals at CNN and Fox would be waving the flag. And Phil Donahue, by allowing some of his guests to be anti-war, would be giving a bad image uh, to MSNBC as a network. Uh, so Donahue had to go. <laughs> There's a chilling quote in your book by an unnamed Air Force colonel with firsthand experience in the drone program. And he says, if you want to know what the world looks like from a drone feed, Walk around for a day with one eye closed and the other looking through a soda straw. Talk about the fallacy of precision strikes and the percentage of people killed who are not intended targets. Well, it's a pleasant fantasy that's been perpetuated by the Pentagon and one president after another from Bush uh, through Biden that there's some sort of precision with drone strikes. Uh, the reality is very different. You quote... Uh, from my book, a um, unnamed, and that's an important point, a top official from the Pentagon who did not want to give his or her name because they were afraid to actually speak out publicly. So that was the sort of compromise to give the quote, no name. What a contrast to somebody now sitting in Marion Federal Prison in Illinois uh, named Daniel Hale, who's been sentenced to 45 months in prison for disclosing classified information to the Intercept media outlet, showing that up to 90% of those killed by U.S. drone strikes 
were civilians, were not the intended target. So no good deed going unpunished. This really good deed going really unpunished. And that's under the same Espionage Act that now uh, <laughs> President, former President Trump is facing very different motivations. The Espionage Act does not allow in court for the defendant to speak to motivation. Can you imagine if if the former President Trump were to try to talk about motivations as public service, he'd be laughed out of court. Nobody would plausibly believe that Trump's behavior with classified documents at Mar-a-Lago had anything to do with public interest or public service, whereas Daniel Hale, now in prison as a drone whistleblower, he might have been able to sway the jury if he'd been allowed to speak about why he did what he did. I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about cluster bombs, because it was something that really surprised me when I read it read it in the book. What they are exactly, who uses them where, and who the media accuses of using some of the most savage weapons of modern warfare. Cluster bombs, cluster munitions are surely one of the most inhumane, horrible weapons uh, in the current era of warfare. And the United States uh, used up to two, this is according to official documents from the Congressional uh, Congressional uh, Research Service, two million bomblets from these cluster munitions that spray jagged pieces of metal in all directions. The New York Times reported last year that they kill enemy soldiers and civilians alike. That reporting was when Russia used them in Ukraine. And of course, we should be condemning when Russia uses them. But United States has also been a user of them, used it in Iraq and elsewhere. And here we are. There's a treaty now that 123 countries have, have signed to ban the use of cluster munitions. The United States is not a signatory, neither is Ukraine or Russia. And one thing I can add is that one of the most powerful members of Congress on military affairs, Adam Smith, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee until this year, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, he went ahead and spoke to the Council on Foreign Relations in the middle of last month, and he said that he would be very open to the idea of the United States shipping cluster munitions to the Ukraine forces so they could use them in the current war. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about America's current involvement in the foreign wars and the efforts of the media in covering them up. My guest is Norman Solomon. His new book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. It's sort of understandable that the fewer number of American service people who die, the less the public cares about war. But besides drones contributing to invisible wars, your book tells us that there are a huge number of private contractors, more in some cases than military personnel. Can you talk a bit about the increasing use of these contractors and how they help hide the costs of war? What exactly they do? It's another one of those phrases like defense spending and war on terror that we kind of take for granted. Yeah, it's true. We hear a term like military contractor. They sound like uh, just people who sign a contract, go over and uh, you know help out. 
around the office, around yeah, the you know what uh, you know what comes to mind is somebody driving a caterpillar, a, a big caterpillar machinery or something. That that's all you think yes. about. Yeah, well, they do a lot of uh, tasks that uh, take a burden off of the soldiers. They make a lot more money uh, than the soldiers. But they're also put at enormous risk. And at some point, uh, toward the latter end of the Iraq uh, war that the U.S. was involved in, they outnumbered the U.S. troops on the ground. One of the consequences, though, was that at least when veterans are injured, they have PTSD or they have physical injuries, uh, they get some sort of uh, help uh, in terms of health care from the Veterans Administration. Uh, typically, the contractors get no help whatsoever. If they've been injured, uh, if they have lost their lives, their loved ones, their spouse, uh, they have, in most cases, no recourse because the contracting companies basically took the money and ran. One of the benefits for the Pentagon is when they have released figures over the years, and they'll say, well, in the last year, X number of U.S. soldiers have been killed in Iraq, for instance, they don't have to mention the military contractors. So it's a way to downplay the toll for Americans uh, for those wars. One of the things that your book is very clear about is women in the armed services and how this very silent period of continuing war that we're in is also because of the way that women are treated in the military. Um, it's also a war on women service people. Isn't that true? Both inside the military and then in terms of the aftermath of military service for uh, spouses have suffered terribly. And by all indications, and there have been occasional exposés uh, by the New York Times, the author Barbara Ehrenreich chronicled this in her book, Blood Rights, 25 years ago. It's just as much true today. Enormous sexual harassment and assault in the military. And I think it's just not coincidental. Of course, that's a problem uh, throughout many institutions of society, but especially in the military, which, after all, is a, a hyper-masculinized, um, if you can call it that, macho culture where violence is seen as something positive, domination is seen as something positive, the sexism, the misogyny is rife, often it's even part of the training, and we've seen the results just to be cataclysmic in terms of so many women who've been in the military, whose lives are shattered. Uh, Senator Gillibrand from New York, year after year, has introduced legislation that I talk about in the book to try to begin to remedy this. And the extraordinary thing is that she accused the chairs of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees of her own party, fellow Democrats, of basically doing the bidding of the Pentagon to water down and prevent effective legislation to try to curb this epidemic of violence and sexual assault against women in the military. And we got to ask ourselves, why would the Pentagon be so against effective measures to stop these assaults on women inside the armed forces? I'm not going to ask you the answer. You don't know the answer. I don't well, know the I answer. Well, I mean, the shorthand answer would be that misogyny is rife in the military and that it's part of the war ethic, that the inculcated goals and, if you will, the principles, uh, axioms of 
especially wartime that we have no reason to believe has any foreseeable end, that part of the premise is that violence, if you can get your way with violence, go for it. And uh, that is a prescription for sexual assault and rape. Who is profiting from all this endless war? There are an increasingly large number of small corporations, an increasingly small number of large corporations that are making a killing literally and figuratively. There are more lobbyists on Capitol Hill for the military contractors than there are members of Congress. And the profits, the spigots have just opened for uh, an outpouring, a waterfall uh, of profits, especially since 9-11, what might be called, to build on Dwight Eisenhower's phrase, a military-industrial intelligence complex. They're called the Beltway Bandits. They go from BWI Airport uh, to Reagan Airport, and they're just passing in, and there's no end in sight. They're making enormous profits. So all this war, including shipping of weapons to Ukraine, it's enriching stockholders. It's making some CEOs extremely wealthy. Last question. In a conversation that you had with Daniel Ellsberg, he says he's not very hopeful about America's public concern for people of other countries killed by U.S. military bombings. He says Americans don't realize or maybe even enjoy the fact that they live in an empire, a country that feels it is entitled to invade and demand regime change anywhere in the world because we're morally superior. What are your thoughts on the continuation of American exceptionalism? American exceptionalism has been really embraced uh, by leaders of both parties, and uh, it's part of the sort of the, the rhetorical playbook to say that we're really special, we're apart from other countries because we're so great and wonderful, and uh, that we are absolutely indispensable, which is a companion rhetoric. As I say in the book, really, we are indispensable to ourselves which is such a narrow and self-defeating and ultimately, one might say, in the nuclear age and the climate uh, emergency age, uh, suicidal. If we've learned anything from the COVID pandemic, if we've learned from the worsening climate emergency, it's that what goes around comes around. And the United States, being arrogant toward the rest of the world, will end up not only fouling our own nest, but quite possibly lead to our own self-destruction. I guess I'm going to end it right there, and I want to thank you very much for an absolutely terrific book that completely opened my eyes. Good luck. Thanks a lot, Ira. I really okay. appreciate the chance to talk with you and, and your listeners. Okay. Bye-bye now. Today we've been talking with Norman Solomon, the co-founder of RootsAction.org. I want to thank Matthew Dunn for his tech work on the show. War Made Invisible was recently published by the New Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the human toll of America's foreign policy, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.